Well, let's take a moment and pray before we read the word this morning. Our Father, we are thankful for this eternal word. We're thankful that it is not just a word for a certain season, for some time in the past, but it is a word for us this morning. It is a word for us tomorrow. It is a word for us for all of eternity. We pray that we would receive the word in such a way this morning. We recognize that it is everlasting, that it is meant to minister to our everlasting souls. In Christ's name we pray, amen. This morning, Matthew chapter 14, verses 22 through 33. This is the holy and errant word of God. Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him on the other side, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds, he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone. But the boat, by this time, was a long way from the land. Beaten by the waves, the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them walking on the sea. When the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost. And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them saying, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. He said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. When he saw the wind, he was afraid. And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Though the grass withers and the flower fades, the Word of God is forever. Thanks be to God. Amen. We spent uh, the beginning of this year looking at our biblical identity. And as we were looking at our Biblical identity, we did so because it's, under, it's important to understand who we were created to be. It's important to understand who we were redeemed to be. It's important to understand who we are to be together. And yet, as important as it is to know who you are, because it can save you a lot of trouble in life, it stops a lot of fears, it kills a lot of worries, it prevents a lot of stupidity, but as important as that is, It pales in comparison to knowing who Christ is. Most of the problems that you and I have in life, that we're wrestling through, that occupy our minds, that cause sleepless nights and restless days, that grips our hearts with fear, that increases our anxieties, stresses us out, 
It's a result of not thinking rightly upon Christ. Sometimes that's ignorance. Sometimes it's amnesia. Other times it's just functional agnosticism. No doubt this will come off as something that a preacher should say, and uh, you would expect it coming from a preacher's lips. But I mean it from the bottom of my heart. If there is one thing that I could change about every single one of you in this room, it is this. That you thought more upon Christ. And that thinking upon Christ, you think rightly about Christ. Because it's the greatest blessing you can experience in this life. It diminishes a lot of those pains and those trials and those struggles. There's nothing more worth your time in this life than to know Jesus more. This text this morning, it provides four points along these lines this morning that I want to bring out. First, Christ Jesus is sovereign over all things. Second, Christ Jesus is the sustainer of His people. Third, Christ Jesus is the strength of His people. And fourth, Christ Jesus is and forever shall be the Savior of His people. So sovereign, sustainer, strength, and Savior. First, Christ is sovereign over all things. This passage begins with telling us that Jesus made, quote, made the disciples get into the boat and began to cross the sea as He began to dismiss the crowds that were gathered there before Him. It's a command. Even more, it's a kind of requirement from Jesus where He's requiring them to get into this boat and to begin to cross the sea. Seems a little strange. Why would He require this? That has to be the first question that we ask of this text. And I think that there are three reasons that Jesus requires the disciples to go away. The first, if you will remember from last week, Jesus had gone to this desolate place on the north side of the Sea of Galilee so that He could get away to pray. He went there to get away and to pray because He was in mourning for the death of John the Baptist, His cousin. That forerunner, that prophet that had come before Him to make the way for His kingdom coming into the world. But you'll remember from last week that Jesus couldn't get away because the crowd hightailed it and got there before He did. And so when He comes upon the shore from the boat that He was riding across the Sea of Galilee, He does not dismiss them. He has compassion upon them and begins to minister to them. So He's no doubt sending everyone away so that He can finally get away to pray and to mourn. But second, we will see He sends His disciples away to test their faith. And we'll return to that idea here in a few moments. But the third reason can be deduced from John's parallel account where John takes this exact same story and he is telling it. And he says that as these 5,000 are around Jesus and as He begins to dismiss them because the people were amazed. He had just fed them, 5,000 men plus 
women and children, so maybe a crowd of 15,000, maybe a crowd upwards of 55,000. And they see him multiply the bread, they see him multiply the fish, and they stand amazed. And rightfully so. There's even more than that. There's a kind of celebratory frenzy that they are in. John tells us in John 6 that when the people realized what Jesus had done, they said, quote, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. And they are right. This is the prophet, the one that was promised that came into the world. But then John tells us this, quote, perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force and to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself. They were ready to carry him into Jerusalem. They were ready to march into that city with Jesus upon their shoulders, 5,000 men plus women and children, an army ready to enthrone him and see his kingdom realized and kick out the Romans. This is not how Jesus' kingdom would arrive. He had to first carry his cross to Mount Calvary. He still had that cross to bear. But here was a temptation, wasn't it? Receive the glory without the cross. And that temptation had to be great. It wasn't a temptation from within Jesus. Jesus has no fallen nature. He was never tempted within But it was a strong temptation without. Jesus, you can have glory without the cross. Satan had previously offered all the kingdoms of the world without the cross. If Jesus just bowed down and worshipped Him, glory without a cross, same promise, same temptation. But it was not Satan's right. And it wasn't the people's right to determine if or when Jesus would fully usher in His kingdom. That was His domain. He is sovereign. No one makes Jesus king. In history, Charlemagne was the the first really conqueror to kind of conquer most of known Europe and There is a famous scene where Charlemagne is before uh, Pope Leo III, and he is kneeling before Pope Leo III, and Pope Leo III takes the crown, and he puts it upon Charlemagne's head, and he crowns Charlemagne the emperor of the Holy Roman Empire. There's a then even more famous scene about a thousand years later when Napoleon has conquered most of Europe. And Napoleon is there before Pope Pius VII. And it's meant to recreate the scene of Charlemagne and Pope Leo III there as Napoleon is there before Pope Pius VII. But there's a major difference in what occurs. Charlemagne takes, I mean, Napoleon takes the crown from Pope Pius. And he puts it on his own head. No one's going to crown him. Napoleon was a little man with an inflated view of himself. Jesus was neither. 
He has all authority. None in heaven and none on earth have authority over Him. Nothing and no one. Nothing can conjole Him. Nothing can force Him. Nothing can determine His path. So He dismisses the crowds. He makes the disciples go across the sea and He goes up on the mountain to pray to spend time with His Heavenly Father. Most of our greatest struggles come when we forget how big Christ is. He's sovereign God over all things. You can't control Him. Nothing can control Him. Matthew would remind us of that in the text. The scene that Matthew paints here for us is of the sea and the mountain. And he's trying to shine this forth in his own way. The mountain is often the place of the spiritual heights that are reached throughout the Scriptures. So it's on the mountain that, that Moses receives the Ten Commandments. It's on the mountain that Moses sees the burning bush. It's on the mountain that uh, Jesus is transfigured. It's on the mountain that He gives His longest sermon. It's on the mountain that He is crucified. And then it's on the seas that we often see the exact opposite. It's the symbol of chaos. It's the symbol of trial. It's the symbol of unruliness. And so it's the sea that has to be hemmed in on those first days of creation. It's the sea that Jonah is tossed by as he is running in, in objection to God. It's the sea that the Israelites had their back up against. As fixed as the mountain is, as chaotic the sea is, it seems uncontrollable from a human vantage point. Except for the one who controls the sea. I remember sitting in a seminary class uh, when I was a student and a hurricane had just hit one of the southern states and there was destruction and there was flooding and I remember us walking into that seminary class that morning and we sat down and we took our seats and there was, there was discussion about the hurricane that had just happened. And then our Greek professor walked into the class. I remember he walked up to the front of the class and he just said, men, let's open our Bibles and let's turn to Psalm 89. And without introduction, he read this. He said, O Lord of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Jesus comes down from the mountain and He walks upon the sea. Who does such a thing? Who can do such a thing? And some find it absolutely unbelievable. How can Jesus walk upon the sea? It's a raging sea. But it isn't unbelievable when you believed He formed the waters. It seems uncontrolled but becomes calm as God speaks to it. The waves know their Master's voice and when He says rage, they rage. And when He says calm, they calm. Making a flat surface in the waters to walk upon them is a small act 
compared to forming the waters from nothing. They are His waters. That's what Matthew wants you to see. No one can do this but God. No one reigns over the uncontrollable but God. And in His light, they are more than controllable. Like a little puppy dog that goes whimpering. When He says calm, they calm. When He says make a flat surface upon them, they make a flat surface upon them. And He walks upon them. He wants us to know from this passage that Jesus is sovereign God. People cannot force Him. Waves cannot stop Him. He is over all. Second, we see that Christ is the sustainer of His people. Matthew tells us that Jesus came upon that water to them on the fourth watch of the night. The Romans would divide the night into four watches. The the first would be from 6 p.m. to 9 p.m. The second would be from 9 p.m. to Midnight, and then the third from midnight to 3 a.m., and then the fourth watch of the night was from 3 a.m. to 6 a.m. before the sun came up that morning. And so here you have Jesus walking upon the water in that fourth watch of the night, somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. And you have to remember that Jesus sent away the disciples upon that sea in the early evening. So they've been upon the sea for... Six hours, maybe, most likely nine hours, battling the wind and the waves. I was at the gym this week, I know it shows, uh, and I saw a rowing machine in the corner and was thinking about this passage and thought, oh, Jason, you could sit down and you could try and row for a little while. And then I realized I would probably make it all of about seven or eight minutes. And so I went to the next exercise piece of equipment. Uh, Nine hours. Upon the sea for nine hours, rowing. Matthew tells us that they were beaten by the waves. For the wind was against them. John tells us in his parallel account that they only went three miles. And that's not very far in nine hours. Mark tells us in Mark 6 that they were, quote, making headway painfully. I guess so. They would have been exhausted. They would have been maxed out in every way. They would have been wet. They would have been cold. They would have been tired and dreary-eyed. But they were not lost because they were being sustained. Christ Jesus is the sustainer of His people. Here's a question for you. Do you think that Christ knew before He sent those disciples across the sea that a storm was going to come about that? You think he knew? Of course he knew. And yet he, quote, makes the disciples go across the sea in that boat to the other side. He could have told them to wait a few hours. He could have warned them that a storm was coming. He could have at the very least come to them sooner in the night and spared them this trial, but he didn't. 
And we see account after account like this in the Gospels. Maybe the most famous is that of Lazarus. When Lazarus is sick and dying and Jesus receives word that Lazarus is sick and dying, He delays. He gets there and Mary and Martha say say to Him, Jesus, if You had been here, He wouldn't have died. Jesus, You could have stopped. Mary and Martha, at the very least, from going through this trial. All the sorrow that they were enduring, all the pain and all the loss, you could have stopped that. And yet He delayed. Why didn't you? Experience suffering or trial and think maybe Christ has forgotten about us? At the very least, if he hasn't forgotten about us, he just doesn't care about us in the moment. He could have stopped this. God knows us better than we know ourselves, and he knows what we need when we need it. To paraphrase A.W. Tozier. It's interesting that Mark, in his account of this passage, says that after Jesus climbs into the boat. Mark says that the disciples, quote, were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. The disciples, they had every right to be frightened in that storm. I don't know if you've been in a storm, especially upon a sea, but that would be a frightening event. And we're not stoics. We don't act as if these things aren't real or they're not happening or there isn't true fear here, or true trepidation, or sorrow, or loss, it would frighten the best of us. Yet Mark in his account provides a little rebuke for the disciples. He says, they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. They should have rightly thought about Jesus by remembering what he did in multiplying the loaves and the fish for the crowd. And what did they see in that event? It wasn't a magic trick. It was Christ's love. It was Christ's power exercised for His people. His power and His love was sufficient to sustain His people. They saw it. They had just seen it. But they weren't thinking rightly. Again, we're not Stoics. They had reason to be afraid. They should have been a little bit afraid, but they should have also been confident in their fear, knowing that Jesus sustains His people with His love and His power in the midst of their fear. And this is why the Scriptures recount what God has done for His people time and time again, so you and I might reflect upon what He has done so that we know who He is, so that we are confident in the present. All that history in the Scriptures, they aren't just cute stories to to tell children. It isn't just mere history for history's sake. They are living, breathing testimonies of who God is and what He has done so that you and I might be confident in the present. He exercises His love and His power as He sustains His people. He has always done it and He shall always do it. Psalm 77, I will remember the deeds of the Lord. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. 
I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. You with your arm redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. Remember what he's done. Psalm 78, we will not hide them from their children, but tell to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and his might and the wonders that he has done, that the next generation might know them, the children yet unborn, and arise and tell them to their children so that they may set their hope in God and not forget the works of God. Faith is built upon remembering what God has done so that we might trust Him in what He is doing. He's the same today as He was yesterday and as He will forever be. His right arm is not too short for His people. His compassion is not too small for His people. His power is not failing for His people. As He sustained His people in the past, so He does in the present. I told you before, our minds, or to be, as it were, fields with little outcroppings of Ebenezer stones all over them. Where you're just filing away, the Lord did this for me, He did this for me, He answered this prayer, He did this, I saw this, I witnessed this. And you just have all of these little Ebenezer stones set up in your mind that you can look back on, that you can have confidence in the present. Remind us of who He is. It's an assumption on my part, but I think it's an educated assumption. When Jesus was on that mountain, praying to His Father in heaven, I think He was surely praying for those disciples that were on the sea. As a writer of Hebrews says, He ever lives to make intercession for us. He was sustaining them even as He was directing the winds and the waves that were battering them. We have a sovereign Savior. Nothing enters our lives apart from His appointment. We have a sustaining Savior. Nothing enters our lives apart from Him keeping us. Why not spare them the trial? Why not spare us the trial? Because it was for their good. Because it's for our good. They didn't understand the loaves. They didn't understand what they were supposed to learn from it about the Lord Jesus Christ. And if He must take His people through deep waters to mature them in holiness and faith, He does so without any regret. God seldom uses anyone without taking them first through deep waters and then taking them through deep waters again and again and again. Christ knew what was for their best and He knew what would give God the most glory in their lives. And so He made them cross the sea. And He made the storm rage. 
But he also knew that even as he made them and as he made the storm, he also knew that he would sustain them. It's not as if he changed in that moment from feeding the 5,000 when he went up on the mountain that all of a sudden he was a different Savior. When he saw the crowds, what did he do? He had compassion on them. It's not as if now he's up on the mountain and he's praying alone with God and he no longer has compassion for his people. No, he looks with compassion upon the disciples that are on the sea. And you know this because he comes down from the mountain and he walks upon the sea and he meets out that compassion to them. He does it in his timing. He knows that they're dust. He knows their fragility. He knows their weakness. And so at the right moment, in the right time, according to his right judgment, he relieves them comes walking upon the sea towards them. And here we see our third point, that Christ is the strength of His people. Interestingly, He comes upon the sea, and as He comes upon the sea, the disciples see Him, and they are absolutely frightened, and they think that this is a ghost that is approaching them. Matthew says they were terrified. And then verse 27, but immediately, but immediately, Jesus spoke to them saying, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. Immediately. There's no hesitation. The time had come, they needed His reassurance at that moment, and Jesus never arrives too late. Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid, He says. Think about those winds and those waves that are howling, the storm is still going. And yet, when Christ speaks to His people, they hear despite all the circumstances raging around them. John 10, the sheep follow Him for they know His voice. What does He say? He opens with a command and He ends with a command. Take heart. Do not be afraid. Take heart. Do not be afraid. On what grounds, Jesus? There's a storm here. I just lost my job. My marriage is falling apart. My kids are wandering. We're in debt up to our neck. This sin just keeps assaulting me. And I keep giving in over and over. Take heart. Do not fear. How, Jesus? By what He places in between those two commands. It is I. Take heart. Do not fear. Why? Because it's I. It's literally the divine name that he uses. I am. I'm here. God's with you. Jesus is the strength of his people. The disciples won't understand this in all of its depth in this moment. They won't understand that until after the resurrection. 
And he's telling them, God is here with you. Friends, never is the danger so great. Never is the trial so grim, the darkness so black, the storm so severe that we are ever in danger of being outside our Savior's care and strength. Never. If it was our faith alone that we had to battle Satan and to battle all the forces of darkness in this world with, we would be outmatched. But we're kept by a sovereign, sustaining Christ of love. And He is our strength. Though all the forces of darkness are opposed to us, there is, no, there is more power aligned with us than there is against us. And Peter begins to understand this in the moment. And he sees the Lord Jesus. There is my sovereign, sustaining Lord and Savior, my strength. And so he says, I, I love Peter. He says in verse 28, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. It's not doubt that he's uttering there. It's as if he's saying, Lord, as surely as it is you, command me to come out to you. Jesus does. Peter, in this amazing act of faith, steps out of the boat. Imagine the faith it took in that moment when the, the wind's blowing and the waves are rolling and the rain is pouring. And he just steps out of the boat. When I was a Boy Scout, each summer at our summer camp, we would build this huge monkey bridge out of lashings and knots and wood. And the thing would be, we aimed at usually 17, 18 feet off the ground. And so we would spend the first two days of summer camp making this thing. And then the last four days of summer camp, we would then walk on this thing. Well, some would walk on this thing. Every year we would build it. And every year I would help build it. And it was a lot of work. And you get... This bridge that was just a single thick rope that would go across and then you would have two ropes on the side that you would then have to walk across that rope and hold the two ropes on the side. And Every year it feels like I would walk my way to the top of that monkey bridge and I would stare at the rope and I would stare at the handrails, ropes, and I would see the ground beneath and I would decide... I think I'm going to head back down. It looked fun from the ground. Uh, it didn't look so fun from the air. To take that step off took an amazing amount of trust in what we had just built. And we were a bunch of boys. He takes the step off the boat in faith. Peter's often thrown under the bus in this passage, but to take that step of faith off the boat onto the water as the sea is raging, it's amazing. He takes that step. His eyes are fixed on Jesus. And Jesus gives him the courage and Jesus 
kept him above the water. There's incredible strength in Christ. The object of Peter's faith keeps him. But then what happens? His eyes wander from Christ. And Matthew says in verse 30 that he, quote, saw the wind. Now, you can't see the wind. They do. He's seen the effects of the wind. But what's so amazing is that he is experiencing the effects of being with Jesus. He's walking on water. The circumstances, the effects of the wind, they begin to dominate his mind in the moment and he's no longer looking to Jesus, but he's looking to the world. And he begins to sink. But I think this is one of the great beauties of this text. I love that Peter doesn't just sink immediately. He doesn't just go below the waves. Jesus doesn't allow his faith to be swamped. He's not overcome by the waves. He just allows him to slip a little even as he allowed his disciples to be beaten a little by the wind and the waves. He's their strength. They're held up not by their faith, but by His faithfulness. So He doesn't slip below the surface. And so Peter calls out, Lord, save me. That's a good cry when we find ourselves faltering in faith. Lord, save me. And Matthew tells us that Jesus was reluctant to save him. No. Matthew tells us that Jesus turned away from him. No. Matthew tells us that Jesus took the opportunity to rebuke him. No. Matthew tells us that immediately Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him. He's our strength. My confidence is not in my faith, but in the object of my faith. And that leads to our final point. Christ is and forever shall be the Savior of His people. You can be confident. As one commentator said, the moral of the story is not therefore that Peter is flawed because he took his eyes off of Jesus. The lesson is that Peter's Failure does not matter because Jesus does not take his eyes off Peter. Peter's faith is mixed. He's strong in one moment and weak in the next. Can I get an amen there? In fact, when Jesus says to him, O you of little faith, it's actually one word. He just calls him little faiths. You little faiths. Isn't that what we often feel like? Just little faiths walking around. Sometimes stumbling around. Sometimes crawling around. But Christ with great care and even greater patience never rejects His people for weak faith. He's going to encourage and He's going to challenge and He's going to seek to strengthen that faith. But He never rejects us for it. As an old Puritan said, though there might be more smoke than fire, He would not quench but cherish it. Your grace may be little and your corruption much, he will prize you yet. Mixed up in Peter, as is true of all the disciples in that boat, as is true as every single person in this room, there is mixed up together faith and doubt. 
even the very best among us in this room, does not have a perfected faith. It's mixed up with doubt. But we have a perfect Savior. And He not only saved us, but He is saving us. And so in light of that, we should expect to go through trials and expect to go through tribulations and go, expect to go through suffering so that He might strengthen our faith. Because He's perfecting us. But we should also expect that our sovereign, sustaining, strong, saving Christ will not let us go in the midst of it. He can't. Because He saved us, and so He will save us. Jesus asked Peter a question that causes self-reflection. He says, why did you doubt? It isn't meant to be a harsh question. It's meant to be kind of instructive, corrective question. Why did you doubt? It is, do you know who I am? Do you know who you are to me? There's a benefit to asking ourselves questions like that in the midst of our own anxieties and fears and Am I not His? Why am I doubting? Why am I fearful? Does He not watch over me? Do I not know who He is? And who He has always been? And who He promises to be? Do I really think that He has stopped being that in this moment? He preserves me. Without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, all things must be subservient to my salvation, as the Heidelberg Catechism says. And that should lead, that knowledge of who Christ is and who He is to us, should lead to what is the climax of this text. The climax is not the calming of the storm. The climax is not Jesus lifting Peter's head above the water. The climax is verse 33. And those in the boat worshipped Him, saying, Truly, You are the Son of God. It elicits praise. Who is this? They've never used this term for Him before the disciples. He's the Son of God. Satan will use it in the temptation. The Father will use it in Jesus' baptism. But the disciples have never arrived at this point in the Gospels. But now, as they see Him for who He is, that He is the Sovereign, that He is this sustaining, that He is this saving, strong Christ, it elicits praise for them. Truly, this is the Son of God and they worship Him. Jesus receives rightfully the worship. The sovereign Christ who sustains His people and is the strength of His people and is the Savior of His people knows what is best for His people. You've got to trust that. You have to trust that. 
all things are working together for your good, dear Christian. It's not a throwaway line that we just give one another so that we can go on and move on to the happy person in the next room. It's true. And we have to keep reminding ourselves of that. Because we are little fates walking around. We have a great Savior who holds us fast and will not lose His grip upon us. Let's pray. Lord and our Savior, Christ Jesus, we do exalt You this morning. What a great Savior, a great God, great friend you are to sinners. Forgive us that our faith is often tepid. Forgive us that it is mixed with doubt. Forgive us that though you prove yourself over and over, we continue to struggle to trust you with all that we are. Oh, we believe, Lord Jesus, but help us in our unbelief. Help us to know you more fully and to know you more accurately and to worship you as a result. In Christ's name we pray, amen.